Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lift As We Climb podcast with me, Kaylin Grace Apple. While we each strive to achieve success, we must always remember to lift as we climb. In today's episode, I interviewed a previous professor of mine from UCLA, Dr. Kyle Mays. Dr. Mays is an assistant professor in the African American Studies and Native American Studies departments at UCLA and is the recent author of several books, including Hip Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and Hip Hop in Indigenous North America, and his upcoming publication, The Indigenous Motor City, Indigenous People and the Making of Modern Detroit. If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, you might remember that Dr. Mays was actually the inspiration for this podcast and its title. His class had a significant impact on me and my career as an aspiring legal history scholar, and I'm so thankful that he was willing to be a guest on my podcast. I will warn you ahead of time that the audio may have some rough cuts since Dr. Mays' dog wanted to join another podcast and was barking for part of the recording. But I did what I could, and I hope that you enjoyed it anyhow. Dr. Mays has such an incredible insight as a scholar, and I really think you'll gain some valuable information from this interview. Remember, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to leave a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts and share that you're listening along on your Instagram stories. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into this episode. Hello, Dr. Mays, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to be a guest. I look forward to our discussion and learning more about your past and present research, as well as your personal journey. I'm excited to be here today. So to begin every podcast, I always start with the section I call past, present, and purpose. So the first question I wanted to ask is who from the past has inspired you and how has their legacy played a role in your personal and professional life? For me, if I chose a historical person, it would definitely be Malcolm X. Um, For instance, when I was in 11th grade, I was having just a particularly hard time and a teacher that I had uh, Lothar Konietzko, Mr. K. He he was a, a white guy, German, I think first generation German um, immigrant. His parents, I think, immigrated. And he's like, look, I know I can't reach you, but let me give you the autobiography of Malcolm X. He knew I would read. I was in his AP U.S. history course. And so I read it within a couple of days and it absolutely changed my life. And uh, before teaching, before giving talks, I always listen to Malcolm X speeches uh, when I need some inspiration um, in moments which we'll get into later, uh, like today, during this particular climate. I always reread and listen to speeches of Malcolm X. So for me, that's remained a person that I look up to. And the thing I appreciated about Malcolm was his honesty, his humor, and the the rawness and the way in which he spoke it you know for instance i appreciate someone like um the D- reverend dr martin Luther king jr but he had a very you know very uh african-american middle class preacher southern drawl voice which is fantastic but malcolm had this northern more um aggressive if you will straight to the point and use a lot of slang that he understood the people that he needed to reach uh, spoke and understood. So that's the person I was look up to historically. And then who inspires you today? Who in the present inspires you? Uh, two people in particular. I mean, there are many people. Uh, first, uh, Geneva Smitherman, who 
who uh, is a scholar, uh, she's since been retired since 2011, but a scholar of African American language and Ebonics, or African American Vernacular English. And she is one of the major reasons why I decided to go into a PhD, and we'll get into that later. But um, uh, she still inspires me, her commitment to justice through uh, language and justice for black youth, and also just representation of popular culture. The second person is a historian and now my colleague, which is always weird to say, uh, is Professor Robin D.G. Kelly at UCLA. Uh, he is perhaps the most genuine and the nicest person I've ever met in academia and always there to help. And uh, he's been, he's still so young, but he's been committed to social justice and just doing the right things in academia through his writing uh, for so many years now. And he's an inspiration and in why I try to match his productivity, which I never will, by the way, but. I've seen the impact that his writings had on me personally and also other people. So he's someone I uh, aspire and look up to uh, even to this day, even as a colleague. I remember he was one of the people that I wanted to work with when I got to UCLA. So yeah. I, can, I can attest to, to how powerful his, his voice can be. Um, yeah. So what, is, what would you say is your why? What was your purpose in your work, in your past work? Kind of what drives you? My major purpose and why I write the things that I write on African-American, Native American history, the combination of the two, is to show people that a U.S. democratic project is rooted in the simultaneous uh, processes of settler colonialism. That is the ongoing dispossession of Native people from their land and erasing them from history, popular culture, etc. And also enslavement and the subsequent anti-blackness that continues to exist in the society. On the one hand, people often, and, and rightfully so, talk um, about the things that happen to black people in the society, but also at times forgetting that issues facing Native people have always been just as uh, prescient as, as other folks. Maybe they're different. I like to try to see comparisons and similarities, but both of those things shape how we understand uh, U.S. democracy and also how we un we understand what it means to be a nation today, uh, whether we would like to admit it or not. Excellent. So now we're going to get into kind of the body of the of the podcast. We're going to be talking a little bit more about your background and your research and a couple other things. So the first question is, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you made it to where you are today in your academic career? Talk a little bit about where you grew up, where you attended school, what your prominent research interests have been and how they've evolved over time. Just a little bit of background. Yeah. So, um, so my, my father's, uh, Saginaw Chippewa, which is a tribe in Michigan. It's about an hour north of Lansing, Michigan, which is the capital and about two hours north of Detroit, Michigan. Um, and he's from Detroit and Lansing. Um, and my mom is from Cleveland, Ohio. And, um, so her side of the family is from Georgia and South Carolina. They were enslaved in that area. You know, because of enslavement, it's hard to always trace exactly uh, who's related to who and when, you know, where they came from, um, where they were kidnapped from, rather, from the continent of Africa. But I know they were enslaved in South Carolina and Georgia. And then my dad's side of the family has been in uh, Michigan. It is Anishinaabe uh, people 
for a long time. So uh, I, I like to give a brief genealogy just to highlight that I come from these two particular uh, groups of people, resilient groups of people. And so I, I mostly grew up in Lansing, Michigan, uh, which is where Malcolm X grew up, which is the home of uh, Irvin Magic Johnson. And I attended high school at Everett High School where Magic Johnson made famous and attended high school. Um, I had a diverse array of friends and people um, that I grew up with. And um, the person I mentioned earlier, Mr. K. Lothar Konietzko, he asked me to consider going to James Madison College at Michigan State. And it's a public affairs college that focuses on issues around democracy, political theory, um, all this. And I was dead set on going there now because those people are still known on campus as the one students who read and write all day, every day. Um, and so I really decided to go to Madison to initially to go as a, as a lawyer. And I was like, they work way too damn hard. <laughs> um, not the academics that work hard, but uh, I was like, well, let me just go into academia. And then I met Louise Jazerski, who is uh, still good friends with, took her social theory class. And after class, I said, hey, Dr. Jazerski, all you do is read and write and talk shit about things that you like. How do I do that? <laughs> and she's like, were those just Ronald McNair's program uh, for uh, minority students and women? And you should consider doing it. And those programs, um, I don't know if it's still in existence always, but they're always looking for men of color because for whatever reason, they don't often fit GPA standards or whatever. And I think I went in in January and they immediately let me in because I think applications were due in November. And they were like, you should come do it. And I got a whole summer. I got paid like a few thousand dollars. But you know, as an undergrad, it's a lot of money. And all I got to do is read and write all day. And I was hooked uh, ever since then. Um, and yeah, and, and I mean, I, I still love doing this. I can, you know, I like the teaching part too, but I, I mostly love the research part of it. So I want to talk a little bit about this kind of current social and political climate with the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests going on throughout the country. I wanted to ask if you could perhaps shed some light on the historical prevalence of this moment, as well as what we can do as people, as historians, as academics in particular, to learn from the past and apply it to what we're seeing in our present. Well, one, uh, this is probably the most diverse uh, set of protests and longest lasting, I would even say, in history um, as it relates to black protests. Um, you know, even going back to the 1960 rebellions, uh, it was mostly African-Americans. I mean, there were some white folks involved in, you know, in broadly speaking, but it, it, at least around the cities, around Detroit, for instance, um, Newark, those are predominantly African-American. That is, that's not the case right now, which um, gives me great hope. Um, but I like to caution people that 
one, we had rebellions before and how much we have do have to ask how much has changed. Obviously, I mean, things are not an absolute. Some things have certainly changed, but the issue around police brutality and police violence in a police state hasn't changed. I mean, uh, we're surveilled more even now. So we have to ask if things have really changed. And as far as uh, things happening now, you know, like there's a thing about the city council in Minneapolis saying that they're going to defund the police. And I've seen a lot of celebration of that. But I I am cautious. Uh, and again, I, I do believe that the police should be one actually abolished not just defunded but you know some things you have to do in steps um you need to put all that money into social services for poor working class uh, people and but the flip side of that is what do you do with people who have or basically trained killers and who would then lose their jobs so to me that is something we actually need to talk about are they like uh, private education or I'm sorry, public education has been privatized uh, with the creation of charter schools? It, are, is a city then going to use private, create contracts or private security companies to police and monitor poor and working class communities? I mean, that's a that's a that's something to consider. And I, I do worry about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to tell. I'm, I'm not as optimistic as a lot of people are. I appreciate protests. I think it's necessary, but we have to ask more fundamental questions about how much can we actually reform and change a U.S. democratic project? And I mean, both at the level of, of its conceptual and philosophical nature that is how they thought about how this project was going to go, how it's implemented, and we cannot forget history. I think people will erase history very easily. And then following history, what, how, how have things gone when people are protested? They get murdered, they get exiled, they create a carceral state. Um, so protests make me happy to see people out there, but I like to put caution like slow down and think about where are we going because it's easy to dismantle and there are people like the people's budget in LA um, who they have some pretty cool things about what defunding the police could look like um, also uh, I think Alicia Garza one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter I believe she um, is a co-founder also of the Black Futures Lab they have a lot of fantastic uh, ideas on what people can do now in the interim, but the Black Panther Party always said uh, programs pending revolution, which you know you have to meet the in immediate needs of people. But what is that revolution or new society going to look like? And we do have to think about that. You have to build while you're dismantling, and I think for me that's the role of uh, academics not to be the leaders of anything. I don't, I'm increasingly becoming weary of academics leading anything, but I do think it's important to produce theory, histories, 
and writings so people can study. Like you, you can't struggle without studying. And I, um, I do think that that's a thing that's often forgotten. Uh, even student activists, young people, you know, we got to go out and struggle. And you do. Well, what is the problem? And unless you study the problem, like Angela Davis, people love Angela Davis. I love Angela Davis too. And you know what she did? She read all the time. And and you can't do that unless you know what the problem is. And again, it's a luxury for academics to sit and read and write. But if you're going to read and write, you know, you also have to make it accessible to the people that you're trying to reach. Like, you can do both. That's why I appreciate someone like Geneva Smitherman or and, uh, Robin Kelly, because they do a lot of uh, things to reach communities. Absolutely. So one thing that I remember from the first class that I took with you, your Afro-Indigenous history class, was the day that you, you took the lecture and posed the discussion about the Me Too movement. That's mm-hmm. one thing that I always remember about my undergraduate education in one of the classes that I took with you. And I wanted to ask you how you kind of, you, you change the methods in the classroom a little bit. You tie in current events and what, what method as an educator do you use to kind of connect current events to what you're teaching and how is that slightly different than what other professors are doing? Cause I think that you have a very unique way of teaching that I didn't see happening in my other classes. Um, well, I'm also not the best historian either <laughs> in the sense that um, I, for me, history is useful for social transformation, but also for how it can help inform what we're doing today. I also study pop culture and contemporary politics. And I'm not a political scientist, but I, I try to pay attention to what's going on. And so if students are engaged and understand things that are going on today, especially around Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, issues around class, gender sexuality, all these things are happening. I would would be remiss not to include those things in class discussion. And for me, they reveal a lot about, one, what students know or don't know about history. And two, how can I just use what they're talking about today and what's going on to inform ourselves about what has happened in the past? Because it's easy to say, you know, let's go be active about X, Y, and Z. But maybe someone already tried that. That's why I like history. (laughs) It's like, well, you know, this has been tried before in a different context, of course. But uh, it doesn't mean it hasn't been tried and people haven't thought about this. And so I, I try to use the contemporary to talk about the past uh, in order to inform the future. And that is the future actions of what people plan to do once they leave the classroom. And also, you know, maybe you're not that interested in Afro, a student is not that interested in Afro-Indigenous history. Uh, Maybe that's not gonna be profound for them, but you can at least take certain tools with you around how you consume contemporary media, pop culture, um, and it can inform anything that you're going to do. Uh, and in that way, I'm not committed to uh, all students learning simply about history for history's sake, but I want you to learn and think about what the world can look like after. That's why I spend a lot of time changing things up pedagogically. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I, I just 
one thing that I remember about your class versus other classes. I could I can pull out specific lectures or specific talking points or videos that you showed that were very different than my memory of other classes, which has a professor at the front of a room kind of speaking at you and you kind of collecting notes and trying to trying to memorize information. So I think that especially pedagogically, you you're working on a slightly different <laughs> to a slightly different drum, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, as a his boring historian in me, I can sit and listen to some lecture all day. It doesn't bother me at all. But not every student wants to do that. And I try to make sure students don't sit down all the time. They're th fielding questions. I mean, and for me also, what a student can say in class often can be more important than what I have to say. And professors, we all have egos in teaching. We think what we prepare is the most important thing that day. And maybe it is not. Maybe it isn't. And I, I try to feel the room in a classroom. There are often times I prep something and I go in the classroom. You know, I always ask people, like, how is everyone doing? And I'm like... I think what I have to teach today is not going to be relevant. So I try to be flexible as, as much as possible as well. Yeah. And I think that that's something that can be, that can be implemented. And I think that that's definitely something that I want to take into consideration when I, when I go into teaching in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard though. It is hard. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've taught a totally, I've taught, sport I've taught in a totally different way. I think it's just obviously a very different form of teaching and also different type of student. Teaching is teaching and it, it's like coaching. It's like, how do you get a, a variety of different people to think who all have different ways of thinking and different approaches, different backgrounds? It's the hardest thing to do, but it is fun. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, why why academia? Why did you choose this career path and this line of research? I know you said that it's it's a career where you get to write and you get to read and that's um, and that you like the research aspect even more so than the teaching at times. But what was kind of that thought process? Talk a little bit about about your PhD and kind of the your postdoc and and getting to UCLA. Um, what has been your path through it? Um, well, like mentoring was a large part of it. I had um, Geneva Smitherman who had a mentoring program for young black men from Detroit. And when I met her, I met her former student who was the writing instructor for that, for the McNair Summers program. And I, his name is Austin Jackson. He's assistant director of the writing center at Brown University right now. And he said, you should absolutely uh, be a part of a mentoring program. I was like, all right. And then I met uh, Dr. Smitherman, and, you know, I got to spend so much time with her, like, learning about why she got a PhD. And for her, she was sort of old school black studies, academic excellence and social responsibility. You have a job to um, educate people and help your community uh, through academia as much as you can. And you should take advantage of that opportunity. And so for me, it's an excuse to to do those things. And I've always been inspired um, 
especially since graduate school, learning and reading about James Baldwin. And he says something to the effect of, his job as a writer is to be a witness to, to current events and history and to share that information with people through his, through his writings. And for me, that's also a way I was like, well, I can definitely do this through academia. Um, it is a privileged position, but I also don't want to glamorize it. Um, there's a lot of people who are adjuncting, so I'm very fortunate, um, who get exploited. Uh, graduate students get exploited a lot. They're not paid enough. Um, so I, I do want to uh, make sure I mention that. But um, I went, I, I started off actually at Michigan State. Uh, I went from undergrad to the PhD program in African American and African Studies there for about two years. But I really couldn't do the comparative Afro-Indigenous stuff that I wanted to do. And so I talked to George Cornell, who's an Anishinaabe um, professor at Michigan State. And I'm good friends now uh, with his daughter, Akikwe, who's at the University of Minnesota, finishing up. And I was like, hey, Professor C, like, I want to, you know, this grad school thing here isn't working out. Is there any place you think I should apply to? He's like, you should apply to Illinois. I was like, the place of the racist mascot? Fuck that. <laughs> and uh, he he said Fred, Fred Hoxie, uh, and Robert Warrior, my PhD advisors, would take care of me. And so I went there. Um, it was a fantastic place and great scholars. And that's how I ended up in the history PhD there. And I had a world-class education of of folks there and it wasn't really until after I graduated I'm like there's some like Dave Rodiger was there uh Antoinette Burton um, who's a, a British Empire feminist historian there's a host of people there in that history department that's strongest on European history actually but fantastic on U.S. history and histories of empire and race and colonialism that I didn't quite appreciate until actually I left um, and, and also just across campus, even in a small Midwestern town. Um, and that also helped me make sure to think interdisciplinary, or keep, keep that around my work. Um, because for me, it's about, in research though, what are your questions? So it's less about the discipline. What are your questions? What's the best way to approach those questions? They might not always be history, even though I have a degree in history. Um, and I always have approached research that way. And um, and to say that all these things are relationships I'm talking about. So I applied to a PhD at Michigan State because of relationships. I went to McNair because of relationships. I went to Illinois because of relationships. Even the uh, postdoc at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, Melinda Maynard Lowry, who I remember reading her book in 2009, and I just sent her an email. I said, uh, I really appreciate reading this book on the Jim Crow South, blackness, and indigeneity in the Lumbee tribe. And that's all I did. No one asked me to do that. I wasn't trying to get anything out of her. I just said, like, I really like this book. Uh, in academics, you don't get that a lot. Um, and so, I was graduating, trying to figure out what I was going to do from the PhD at Illinois in 2015, or the fall that year. She's like, she sent me an email, hey Kyle, like, 
you should apply to this uh, this postdoc. And I was like, Chapel Hill? The only thing I knew about Chapel Hill is basketball and like Michael Jordan. That's it. Uh, and then, I, you know, I, you know, I looked at the roster. And I was like, oh, wow, that's some fantastic historians here. And I ended up getting the postdoc again because of a relationship. Um, even UCLA, I had applied for the postdoc, the president's postdoc, and I didn't get it. But um, I learned, I saw that they had a uh, had a job in Native Studies. I applied. I was, I was like, I don't think I fit any of these criteria. Um, and then I was in, I think I was in Calgary, uh, in Canada, giving a talk or something. And so I kept seeing this LA phone number and I had two friends in LA and I had their number. So I'm like, Oh, I hope nothing's wrong. <laughs> so I stepped out of dinner. Uh, so I picked up the phone and it was, uh, Ben Madley, who's a historian at UCLA. And he's like, Hey Kyle. It's like, Hey Ben, uh, mind you, I don't really talk to him that much. Obviously he's like, Hey, I just want to let you know, uh, you know, we're excited to invite you out for a job talk. I was at UCLA, and I was like, cool. I mean, <laughs> uh, I didn't expect that. And I I had two other sort of job offers, um, three actually at the time, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, so I just dragged those out to figure that out. And then I got to talk to Rob and DG Kelly on the phone. And I was like, what? Wait, this is, I'm talking to Robin Kelly right now. Uh, so it was a fantastic thing. And then I did the interview, and everyone was just great. Um, and and that's how I got – I never – I used to want to be on the West Coast. I kind of had given up that dream. I thought I was going to be in Toronto. And I, I still love Toronto. But I was like, LA, the weather's kind of nice out here. I've heard of these earthquake things, but the weather's nice. Um and it ended up being the best uh, place for me to do the work that I could, and, the, and again, the colleagues. And, and then I would learn that the students were fantastic also. So it's a great choice. Yeah, I think UCLA, I mean, given I only have my experience at UCLA and, and now Oxford, but UCLA is a very, it's a special place, <laughs> especially for yeah, African-American yeah. studies. So the next question I want to ask you was, I remember the first time I talked to you about potentially considering a PhD and talking to you about the job market in particular. And I think that this is a good segue from what we were just talking about, because I think that especially in the humanities, the discussion of the job market is, is so, so vitally important, especially because I think some students go into grad school and just kind of think they'll figure it out. Um, so what would you say was kind of your way through grad school and kind of touching back on making those connections and how that was important. And then also publishing your first book. And you already kind of talked about how you got the assistant professorship at UCLA. But can you kind of talk about while you were in your PhD, what were you doing in order to kind of make a future for yourself, make a make yourself applicable for for jobs? Yeah, and, and getting jobs is often about luck. And whether you get something or don't get something, it's luck involved, just to put that out there. And it's a collision of, of your preparation and timing. Um, and I always like to tell, because there are fantastic people who probably have a, had a better profile than me, 
um, who are doing fantastic research because people get down on themselves when they have the job market for years and it's like has nothing to do with your research or abilities. Uh, that being said, I'll never forget in the first year seminar, I took a Dave Rodiger. It was a class on um, like the history of race in the U.S. A grad seminar. Everyone, of course, is trying to take this class because it's Dave, but he made a comment uh, about, he's like, you know, people need to start publishing earlier. It's unfortunate, but when you go to the job market, you're competing with people who have book contracts. Uh, some have already written books. Some have several art research articles out in the Journal of American History and top journals. So you got to kind of show you guys something. Um, and so with that information and also mentoring I had from Dr. Smitherman and some of her students, I always looked at people I admire, how much they publish at that time. I'd always be reading people's profiles all the time. And so... I spent a lot of time, every summer, I was like, I'm going to write something. I'm going to sit down and research and write something. And the first article I published was in the Journal of American Indian Quarterly. And it was on us, the first year seminar paper. My first year seminar paper was trash. Even this article, looking back, is actually not that good. I thought it was like the best thing ever. It was, it's not even that good. But I went through the process early on. Uh, revisions... Um, reviewer number two was probably their was probably their book that they wanted me to read anyways, which I still didn't find helpful. But it was a learning curve, and then it just from there I would go into conferences all the time as much as I could, uh, just writing. And even now, I might not do a project. Well, even this Afro Indigenous book history book, I've been kind of working on that since grad school. Um, not that I kind of knew where it was going to go. I just, I just write. And then I kind of figure out where I'm going to go later. Uh, and so that's what I, that's what I still do. Uh, I was working on a project yesterday, um, that I was like, it's walking my dog. I'm like, Hmm, I guess I could do this project. I've been thinking about this for like 12 years. I could probably, I could probably like do this in a year. And that that's, and I encourage students to write, especially if you're going to grad school, you have to write, uh, no one's there's some people like Robin Kelly or Geneva Smith who can just write something. I'm not one of those people. I just write and revise. Uh, and you have to write all the time. Doesn't matter. You got to write every day. Doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or otherwise. Doesn't matter if it's a paragraph, a page, a sentence. You have to open your computer, or if you write in a journal or something, you have to write. Um, that's a part of the profession. Um, and even now I'm learning. There's letters of, rec letters of recommendation to write. There are reports to write. Reviewing journal articles. Reviewing book manuscripts before they're published. Writing reviews of published books. You know what all that consists of is writing. And if you're going to do this profession and you don't like to write, like maybe you need to go do something else. <laughs> it's, it, it, the writing doesn't stop. And, it, and I'm not even, again, the things I mentioned, they have nothing to do with your own research. The things that are part of the profession have nothing to do with your own research. So it's always writing. Um, but I like to write, though. Especially the R ones. But increasingly, even at community colleges and um, liberal arts colleges, you also have to write. I mean, I had a job offer from a liberal arts college. 
And uh, during the interview, like they, of course, teaching is evaluated equally for tenure, but they all continued to focus on how much productivity I had uh, just two years out from my uh, from graduating. So it doesn't matter, and that's also how I got the, um, the my first book, the hip hop book. So after I graduated. Um, Dr. Smitherman, I think we had lunch with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of our close friends and family. And she goes, well, son, it's two years. You ain't got no kids. That's two books. And I remember thinking like, what? And she said it like just casually. You know? it wasn't a joke. She didn't laugh. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, two books. That's crazy. But I've been, I had written an article. I'm in sort of dabbling. I'm always doing multiple projects all the time. So I was like two years. I want to get away from my dissertation for a year to kind of think about it. Come to a fresh. I had this postdoc for two years. So I was like, well, I got to keep writing. Why don't I just write this hip hop book? And I wrote that the first year. Um, and then I, there's an editor I talked to about another project and I was like, Hey, I have this project. She's like, I'm sold. So I got that under contract. Um, and then I wrote that one, uh, about in about nine months actually. But as a postdoc, like I wasn't teaching, I just had time. And um, I wrote that one. Uh, and then the second year, I started revising the Detroit one, which I'm still revising a little bit, and hopefully it'll be out in the next year or two, well, like, probably a year or so. Um, and just yesterday, I gave the Afro Indigenous History uh, book to my editor. Uh, I was going to wait till July or August, but given the time and some of the topics I'm covering, then I, I thought it'd be, uh, apropos for, for now. So I, I gave the, uh, I gave it, I gave it to her yesterday, so we'll see. Okay. Well, good luck with, with that particular project. I'm excited for once it gets published. <laughs> it's a different piece of writing though. It's very different. Well, I remember reading your hip hop book in the Millennials of Color seminar that you taught. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I appreciated about that book in particular was that your voice was very clear and that like I could hear you talking while <laughs> reading it. <laughs> it was very much how you speak, how like the yeah. way your sentence structures are, everything about it just read very much like you. And do you still try to incorporate that voice in say the more like meaty academic work? Like if you're writing in Afro indigenous history. In the, in the, not so much in the Detroit book, kind of more, a little more straightforward history. Um, but definitely the Afro indigenous history book. So it's a beacon press. Uh, so Robin Kelly wrote freedom dreams of beacon press. Uh, I think also your mama's dysfunctional. And maybe another book with Beacon Press, and you, like they're sort of academic press, but they're trade presses, and so it's a part of the Revisioning American History series. I think you also read uh, an Indigenous People's History of the United States, and so you are supposed to write it from a point of view, um, a little bit polemical, not quite polemical, but the the your perspective is polemical and so you have a bit more freedom in how you write and i always try to incorporate some personal stories so 
a reader can just relate to what I'm saying. And also to say I'm not making some of these things up as I'm thinking through this. So, and the hardest thing about writing is voice. I mean, it's uh, it's a very difficult thing. And it's something I struggled with early on in grad school. I'll never forget first year review, they were like, you gotta work on your writing. And I took that as a challenge to say, oh, you know, these people don't think I, think I can write. Like, <laughs> all right, I guess I'll have to prove them wrong. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to always be a better writer. So I always ask, even now, I'll ask anyone who's productive, I'm like, what's your writing process? Like, do you write every day? How often do you write? Um, do you get through writing? Is it, does it come easy to you? So I'm just curious to know. And, and if there's something new, I'll incorporate into my in my writing schedule. I, I learned my writing, well, started to develop kind of my writing a lot more while I was at UCLA after getting some pretty harsh critiques. <laughs> <laughs> in which case, I, I still go through my work and as I'm writing this master's dissertation, I can still hear like my professors from UCLA in the back of my head like, are you sure you want to use that word? It's a little harsh. Like, if you say require, do you actually mean that? <laughs> and I think it's it's funny kind of incorporating different writing styles and different kind of writing processes because I, I still very much have Professor Yurish's voice <laughs> in the back of my head saying, like, make sure you check that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny part is I also I know a little bit about writing scholarship, especially at the university level. And a lot of us academics, we're not writing teachers. And so we give a lot of bad advice. This is why when I give student comments, it's mostly content-based. It's because, like, do your subject and verbs agree? Is this passive voice? Cool. That's all I need to know. And, and that helps students, like, develop their voice. All the technical stuff, you can just learn through time. But we do a lot of disservices academics telling people this is stated incorrectly, this is wrong. That's not how writing, one, this is not how writing goes in society, number one. Uh, number two, do you want you don't want to kill the voice and the writing ability of students. We do this all the time. Those first few years, all this is wrong. And I'm like, no, it's not wrong. It's stated differently. And again, on every campus and across the U.S., around the world, there's some writing instructors and teachers. And uh, the writing centers aren't always good either. They have a lot of racist and sexist things in student writing that can be addressed. Um, but the writing scholarship says you let students write how they do to help develop voice. All the technical things you can, you can learn. But I tell students, they, don't, they never listen to me. I'm like, just write. You'll be fine. Don't worry about all the grammar and all that stuff. I don't care about that. You'll figure that out. But if you don't have a voice, like I don't want to read it. It's a very different approach. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I know that with my writing, I get so so critical and so stuck that I think that, that, that that's yes. a big it's a big difficult it's it's a hurdle that. I find difficult to get over. And I remember specifically having a conversation with you, my first class that I had with you at UCLA about like writing length and whatnot. And I remember you made a comment about, well, if you have a publisher that has a set, a set word limit, like you've got to stick to that and <laughs> you have to figure out a way to, to kind of work within the parameters, but, but keep, keep at it. 
It's hard, isn't it? It is. The more you keep doing this, because there's a lot of stuff to say, but it's like, it's not, it's not you. Like, there's a whole host of things that are happening that are outside of your control. And so writing in that way, even though you do it by yourself, is very uh, social and communal. Yeah, I think it's also very much dependent on who who your audience is, who's going to be. Well, I think yeah, yeah. as an undergrad, you're very much writing for the grade. You're writing for right, right. that professor to give you feedback. And I think what's slightly different about as I'm as I'm slowly navigating my way into graduate school, and I'm, you can speak on this a little bit, but I think as you get into graduate school, you're very much writing to figure out like what is what is the purpose of your research? What is the purpose of your make, you making this contribution? Yeah. And it's not necessarily like you are asking for some feedback, <laughs> but <laughs> but you're not necessarily asking for a direct grade. Like you're not asking to write this for a professor to grade and then you yeah, put it yeah. away. So what are some of your long-term goals as an academic as a public intellectual, what are what are your goals? How do you see yourself in the future? I've been, uh, I don't know, I'm at a weird point. I, I've re- basically written these three books faster than I thought I would. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what's next. And I really don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, the immediate goal, I guess, is tenure. But as far as like public contribution outside of these books and um i don't know i'm thinking about it um you know but i guess conceptually trying to get as many um black and indigenous folks together to think about strategies for dealing with various forms of oppression working with youth as i used to do as an undergraduate but no real concrete plans and i i feel stuck and i remember talking um with robin kelly about this He's like, it's a, you know, it's not a bad place to be. You know, my colleague Anani Roy at UCLA, they both came to the same conclusion separately that it's not a bad place to be. Just kind of figure it out and think about it. And I think that's, I think that's also important is like, even in those moments where you feel stuck, trying to use that as a, as a time to kind of explore your options rather than feeling immediately anxious about, well, I don't quite have quite have it figured out at the moment especially because I think one thing that they don't talk about enough in graduate school or just even if you're going into a career outside of academia is okay so you you go through school you get the diploma you get the degree you publish the dissertation whatever it is and then you head off into a career and then kind of what comes after that what do we do with what do you do with that career and how do you make it a long term? How do you make that long term plan? Because you've been you've been hustling all the way till you make it to the job, and then I guess the question is after that, like, what do you what do you do with that? How can you continue to evolve your work and yourself as a person within that career? Yeah, and I I guess another reason I feel stuck is because like based upon the amount of work I've done thus far, or just the writing that is. It's the equivalent of a full professor. It's like three single-authored books. And I... I don't know, I just wrote them. I, I didn't really worry too much about tenure and all that, so I just kind of write and just hopefully you see how it goes. But um, 
that a lot of academia doesn't, as you were saying, doesn't really prepare you for the long haul or a long journey. Just like write this stuff and get tenure. And I haven't received tenure yet. I plan on going up next year, the year after, but what then? Yeah. Well, I think there's not enough of a discussion about that. No, it still isn't. Remarkably, it still isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately, I know, I know for, for me, there's other aspects of, of my academic career, but also kind of what I want to do in terms of providing access that I see past, like, it's, it's slightly yeah. different than I think what I, what I would conventionally want if academia was my only goal. But yeah. I think that ultimately there needs to be a discussion about like what happens, like what, yes, you're striving for tenure, but then in addition to that, what are you also contributing in and outside of academia? And I think that I remember you writing some like op-eds and some, some articles outside of academia, which is why I asked on um, kind of what your goals are as, as kind of a public intellectual and your, you want your contribution to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll probably still kind of do those. Uh, I've slowed down just to write these books, but I'll probably get back into those. We'll see though. So some, somewhat on a tangent, if you could have gone into any other career, what would you have been? What would have, what would have been? Sports journalism. Of course, I would be on one of these shows debating sports all day. Um, and the the only issue is like the intellectual stuff is difficult to put on there. And some of the shows are more debate and less intellectual. But like someone I really admire uh, is Max Kellerman, who's on ESPN's First Take with uh, Stephen A. Smith. And Max Kellerman, white Jewish dude, but like super smart and i think he has a de- degree um the, even just a ba or something in uh in hit u.s history from columbia but he'll every once in a while i know understand you have to sort of dumb things down um for for that type of show content they have every once in a while he'll drop some like dimes and i heard some rumor that he's also a socialist too so i was like man he has some like you see the intellectual thing sort of happening and I'm sure it's going over a lot of especially their target audience of their heads and I'm just enjoying listening to that I was I wish there was more but I'd probably do sports journalism um, and do those sort of TV type shows but I probably wouldn't last that long getting fired from sort of the mainstream things just because at some point you have to speak out about certain things and I can only be silent about something so long yeah absolutely so one of my favorite questions for this podcast is what is the best piece of advice you ever received? And also what is the most important piece of advice you seek to give? The best piece of advice I've received is to always be in your data and study. Um, I got that from David E. Kirkland, who's a professor of uh, education at NYU. Um, he's like, always be thoughtful in writing and thinking. Um, and it sounds simple, but you could easily just watch TV and binge watch stuff and not think and not be in your research and your data. But uh, that's always been profound to me. Uh, and the best advice I have is to tell people to write. Um, 
you know, it doesn't matter what career you're going to. You have to write stuff. That does not matter what you're doing. You have to write. And that, to me, that's important that we really, um, and it could be on social media. I don't care if it's painting. Like, you need to do, like, pick something up and, like, move. Whether it's kinetic, um, always take care of your mind and your body as best as one is able. Um, but that's super super important like take care of your your mind and your body as best as you're able excellent and then now for the last question which is how do you plan to quote lift as you climb how do you hope to inspire others and be remembered well i hope uh to lift as i climb at some point really starting to work with youth especially uh, young men of color um there's a lot of stuff that I think I can contribute to helping them think through like around the issue around masculinity, et cetera. Um, and, and also so they're not harmed too in this society. So, you know, hopefully I can contribute. And some of that I used to do as an undergraduate, get back to that. Um, and even using like, one thing I have been thinking about um, is writing for younger audiences. Um, like using the same things that I know and just writing very differently for those audiences. So like that, um, like sixth grade to like 12th grade sort of age. Uh, I don't know what that might look like. Well, I know there's, there's like Ibram Kendi who had, I, I believe he had somebody else actually do the writing, but taking his stamped from the beginning book to make a YA version. Yeah. Um, that's something I'd be interested in doing. Because I'll never forget this. Uh, there's a native rapper who, he said he had Afro-Indigenous, uh, they were Lakota and African-American, but it's like there's no representation. It's true. There's like there's zero. Um, and maybe I can get into something like that as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Mays, so much for being willing to be on this podcast and for your insight. Thank you so much for for being a guest and sure, for being sure. willing to take the time to record this podcast with me. And do you have any final words? <laughs> Everyone keep on keeping on. Thank you so much. All right, that wraps up today's episode, everyone. I hope that you guys enjoyed getting to meet Dr. Kyle Mays. He has been such an inspiration and such an incredible mentor to me. He was one of my first professors at UCLA, and I just greatly appreciate that he was willing to take the time out of his schedule to be on this podcast. I don't know if you could tell, but I find him just so intellectually intimidating. I find him to be just such an incredible scholar and to have such a strong voice, not only in his work and as a teacher, but in his writings as well. So if you have a chance to pick up his book, I'm going to be leaving it down in the show notes. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a five-star review. I will greatly appreciate it and perhaps I will feature you on the next episode. All right, so without further ado, that is a wrap for this episode and we'll catch you next week.